I was writing scripts from like when I was like 20. So as long as I've been doing stand-up, I've been writing sitcom scripts at the same time and no one ever read them. Hello, welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And we're joined uh, today by a special guest. He's a comedian, a writer. In fact, he won the BBC Young Comedian Award. Uh, well, that was about 10 years ago, so only slightly not quite as young now, but, but still very talented and with his own TV show as well. ITV2, the uh, second series of Buffering, is about to start and we welcome the co-writer, co-performer, star of the show, Steve Bujaya. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's Hello. so great to have you on. And we're, we're really excited. And we... And I believe you confessed before we started that you have been known to listen to this show. So it won't be a surprise yeah. that we often start with our interview guests by saying, when you were sitting cross-legged on the floor, staring up at the magic box of television, um, that was it was a box back in those days, just about in your case. Um, what were you watching? So I'm, pretty, I'm pretty young. Um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the flats, you remember the flat screen coming in, right? Oh, big time. It was a big yeah. day. Um, yeah. I... Uh, I'd also like to say I haven't had an introduction where they've referenced the BBC New Comedy Award in a long time so I really appreciate right. that because sometimes <laughs> it, it doesn't get said enough that I won that award and I think uh, <laughs> that's correct I appreciate that you said it again uh, okay. it was 2013 though so it does, yeah it's actually 10 years now which is embarrassing um, uh, what did I watch when I was growing up I but one, I, one of my earliest uh, TV sort of obsessions was um, a show, well, a very famous show called Saved by the Bell, which was, you know, I was like oh, 11 yeah. years old. Um, and I used to watch it on Nickelodeon, but I was a 90s baby and, and, and Saved by the Bell was very 80s and they must have just been repeating. I don't know why, but I thought that's what 90s America was like. I had no comprehension that uh, the, the, the hair and the hairspray and stuff was was uh, very much a <laughs> yesteryear thing. But um uh, that was my first kind of, uh, I guess, experience of a sitcom. And actually, I've gone back and looked at it, and it's it holds up very well. It's a very <laughs> well, it's a very well structured sitcom, uh, and uh, it's genuinely very very well character driven. And you know, I still to this day wish I was Zach Morris. Um, yeah, but he probably did pretty well on it. He did do pretty well on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was my first thing, and then I, and then I. Spinal Tap when I was about 12 quite early quite young and I just remember thinking wow this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. like I couldn't believe how funny it was like I couldn't understand how someone could be that funny so that kind of ignited my interest in comedy I'd say and then like every comedian I was a late bloomer in terms of puberty so I used comedy as a way of being popular so that's that's sort of those those two things combined meant I was destined to be a comedy writer what a fantastic combination, a, tri a, tr a trilogy of uh, Spinal Tap, Saved by the Bell, and anything to avoid being beaten up by the big yeah. idiots. Oh, yeah. and also divorced parents, divorced parents. I've got the whole bingo, ah, everyone. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, there's a lovely, uh, I watched the uh, one of the episodes um, where the uh, issue of divorced parents is uh, comes to the fore, which was with, of your new series. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, when, yeah. When we get to that, 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 that's, um, that that'd be great. But... Um, yeah, that's um, that's amazing. In fact, I, I don't think I've ever said it on the show, James. But um, uh, well, you know that Spinal Tap is one of my uh, you know all time top three favorite movies. But uh, my wife actually, uh, she has sort of uh, problems with her back. Occasionally, they flare up, and one particular time they flared up was when I showed her Spinal Tap for the first time, and she she laughed so much watching Spinal Tap that she actually did her back in. So um, <laughs> that's a kind of yeah. uh, a sort of review you you dream of, really, isn't it? But uh, yeah. yeah, Spinal yeah. Tap's the movie that I always say to people who don't work in comedy. I always say when you're talking to people in comedy and ask them what their favorite movie is, you say, apart from Spinal Tap, obviously, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> you know, it's like it's because yeah, it's obviously yeah. uh, obviously number one. Uh, although the last 20 minutes aren't that good, if we're honest. But it's it's not really about the story, is it? It's no, about no, the no. relentless jokes. And also the fact that I play as volume goes up to 11 and uh, is is one That's of the greatest just... things the BBC's ever done. I would never change the license fee because of that simple joke that they've done on <laughs> iPlayer. Absolutely. And so for you, um, 
you know, there was element of sort of be, being the funny guy as well. To you, which came first? Was it the performance or the writing or, you know, because there are lots of people who are stand-ups who think, blimey, I better figure out what I'm going to say. And therefore writing yeah. is a means to an end. Or was it for you, performing was a way of getting your writing out there? Or, I mean, a lot of it is just, you're just not thinking about this stuff, you know, when you're doing yeah, it. Yeah, I but think... looking back, can you discern? Yeah, I can now. At the time, I didn't. I think at the time it was it was clouded in a kind of need for attention and to be different at university. But actually looking back, I think there's two types of comedians. There's the writer comedians and there's the performer comedians. Uh, and the performer ones learn to write and the writer ones learn to perform. And I I think I was a writer comedian right from the start. Like I always was very meticulous in my the scripting of the jokes. And the, the I, I was very much premise driven, like everything was about a premise. And that's what excited me. It wasn't about acting out the premise. And in fact, it took me years to learn how to perform a joke. And one of the things me and Ian are quite good for each other is he is a performer comedian and, he, you know, who happily said that himself. Uh, and then when we, when we write together, uh, I, I bring the kind of logic and the structure to his jokes. And then he tells me how to perform them. And often what happens is I'll, I'll come up with quite a nice premise and I'll be like, I've got this idea for a joke and then I'll do it to him. And he'd be like, nah, it's not very funny. And then he'll do it back to me. He'll do my own joke back to me. And I'll be like, oh, that's how you do it. That's way funnier. But equally, he'll do his joke to me and I'll go, that makes no sense, mate. And then I'll have to like add some rigorous structure to it. <laughs> so that's, uh, uh, we've been doing that since we were about 20 and we, we, we I guess we compliment each other in that, in that sense. But yes, yeah, that's, uh, that's question, the dream I'm a to be that. Yeah, yeah, to be in that situation where you're, you're bringing something different to the table. I mean, that's, that's right. And so you, how did you meet? So you've been doing it since you were in your early twenties together. Yeah. Yeah, I started stand up at university uh, when I was about 19, actually. And yeah, Ian moved up to Manchester to, to work in CBBC. Uh, and we just sort of became friends. On the, we met uh, doing gigs. Um, and I think we were just two of the people on the Manchester circuit who we were just real geeks, real comedy geeks. So we took it very seriously and would meet up for writing sessions. And some of my other friends maybe didn't. Uh, take it quite as seriously uh so i think we just we were sort of the we were the losers on the playground basically and uh we didn't get to go we didn't we didn't i mean ian's very cool now but back in the day he was a, he was a real nerd uh and i haven't i haven't developed in the same way as him but the, back there we had a lot in common <laughs> that's very interesting that you knew uh pretty early on that you were uh, the, the the writer who performed rather than the performer who who wrote um, I think that's something that it took, um, certainly my, my kind of era of stand-ups, it took us all a, a long time to actually kind of fig figure that out, really. So I guess that kind of helps to sort of speed you up on the uh, trajectory and gets you kind of going pretty much. I mean, I mean yeah. in terms of getting sh like a bigger show uh, rather than just doing this, the, the actual, you know, the 10 minutes or 20 minute sets and things. It, it, did you kind of gravitate to those longer shows sort of quicker? Yeah. I um, started doing Edinburgh Fringe. I did, my first debut hour was 2015. And I did a story show. I did a show about, it's called Day Release. And it was about me giving a lift to my friend's dad to her wedding. And I had to pick him up from prison because he was on day release from an 18 year prison sentence. And I happened to be driving past the prison and it was a three hour drive. And he was, he was in there for, I think murder uh and uh he never he never elaborated but um uh and i joined and my show was about a car journey basically a buddy a buddy comedy of me and this murder uh you know convicted murderer going to his daughter's wedding and uh and i knew instinctively that that was going to be a show it's effectively a film really yeah. um i mean it's my first ad Edinburgh, so i'm not i'm not pretending it was uh quality wise of a film but I think a lot of my friends, when they did their first hour, they just did their all their jokes together, all their best jokes from, you know, the, the and that, that was their show. But I wrote a whole new hour and it was all, about, and I put some of my best jokes in there, but it, it, sometimes it didn't fit. Um, I mean, there was a, there was a story about a stag dude that just had to go in because it was my best joke. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, and also I, an, hour's a, an hour's a long time and it doesn't, it's not, it's not a good length for a show. I mean, let's just be honest. The Edinburgh Fringe hour-long slot, it's a disaster. So actually, you know, a 35-minute decent story, A-list, you know, A-story, 
you know, yeah, a, a, st- yeah. a Stagadu story as a as a counterpoint is is a, is a good yeah. call, actually, isn't it? So in also, a way- you need you need some laughs. You do need some jokes in that. Um, so, but yeah, I wrote this story and I was obsessed with it. I went on the um, I did all the story. I'm a real kind of uh, comedy student of comedy, I guess. So I went on like the Robert McKee courses and I read all the books and listened to your podcast. And uh, so I treated this Edinburgh show basically like a a film. And I had, you know, the act structure and the 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 turning points and the 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 all that stuff. Uh, and I, when I talked to my friends about it, the other comedians, they just didn't they didn't see it in the same way. And that's when I sort of realized, oh, okay, my strength is the story, not necessarily uh, just being a comedian. But and so then after that, every year I did a story show uh, yeah. to varying degrees of success. And, how, how did? Um, yeah. Sorry. So I was just going to say, how did it, how did it go with uh, audiences? Did they uh, did it slot into a thing? Yeah, it went it went really well. It went really because mm-hmm. I think with a story like that with the prisoner, instinctively people want to hear what happens. So you kind of can mask some of your inabilities as a new comedian because genuinely they actually want to know what happens with me, this sort of geek and this alpha male murderer. So um, I learned a lot that year about how to how to pay off a story and and actually i sort of saw it as a cheat like i basically felt like i was cheating i felt like i had this uh secret that no one had at edinburgh obviously in hindsight everyone had the secret but at the time amongst the newcomers i felt like because i worked out how to do story i had a an easier path rather than just trying to piece together loads of jokes that's amazing that you talk about it like that because there is this sort of embracing amateurishness of british comedy that it's like, well, you, you know, you figured out how story works, so you cheated. It's like, <laughs> what? No, I mean, I no. know we, we all know exactly what you mean about by <laughs> that, but it, what it does tell you, and this is what we've really discovered uh, in the last year or two reading scripts, is that people really struggle with story. They they really find it hard, and actually coming up with characters, coming up with a situation, and coming up with jokes are. In, they're not easy, but people can do them. But this sort of magic glue that holds them all together and makes them makes them literally take off, you know, makes them fly, um, is super hard. So it sounds like you'd really done those hard yards there with the story structure, um, you know, and obviously movies and sitcoms and that kind of stuff. They're, they're slightly different, but in the, you know, a sitcom's got a beginning and a middle and an end, and and escalation yeah. of plots and stakes and all that kind of business. Um, I I think also not only that, but it's also, uh, you know, it takes from my memory of it, it took most comedians about sort of three or four years of going up with their best jokes for like 20 minutes then 40 minutes then an hour to sort of work out oh actually i sort of might need a little bit of a narrative story here and then the next show they do is about their relationship with their dad and <laughs> uh yeah and it's sort of it, it, it's jokes and there's a kind of moment of poignancy about three quarters of the way through and then yeah. it's more joke and it, even even those shows i mean that, I, I, there were some great ones uh, i'm trying to trying to think of some off the top of my head but i, I can't remember but, but i'm sure there were some really good ones but but generally it was still we didn't we hadn't worked out that actually you want a story with a beginning a middle and an end and the mckee's inciting incidents as you say and yeah. uh you know uh and the all is lost moment that i always bang on about on on here so yeah yeah you know that that is that is brilliant so uh on the yeah and i should add i don't want to sound yeah. arrogant i should add that i'd sort of i think i got lucky in the first year because it was quite a good story like i had you know it had actually happened to me and i found that when i told the story in conversation people were just naturally very interested and then year after year i tried to do a story again and actually not as much good stuff happened in my life uh so the stories were more tenuous and i had to work a lot harder to create uh jeopardy and stakes and things uh so i'm sort of very grateful that that was my first one because i just had this quite good story in my back pocket um when i, I maybe didn't know quite as well how to, to construct a story yeah i guess you bit that was already supercharged as a story wasn't it so that in a way that kind of yeah. really you know you got a bit of a head start on that one but actually the work you then did subsequently on making more of a story 
that yeah. kind of sets you up for sitcom work as well though doesn't it because you know absolutely in the show that you're that you've just done two series of you know you you're taking these little story ideas and going okay so how does this work what's the funniest version of this how does it start how does it escalate uh yeah. how does it pivot how does it or you know all those sorts of things so yeah. um but equally um you know if you've got a really good one to start with uh, then, uh, it's helpful yeah it, it, that that definitely helps do you want to just say a bit about um so you um you know you're working together and about just how how this show emerged and made it onto television because in a way it feels like oh well i i know how this this all must have come together and this is this 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 stuff writes itself and obviously they were going to commission this and blah 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 but we yeah. then discover the aching agonizing journey of this show towards television or are you going to say no 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 we just pitched it and they said yes and that was that um it's a, well I, i'll give you the full story because i feel like the short story will make it sound like it was too easy uh because it wasn't the i was writing scripts from like when i was like 20 that as, so, as long as i've been doing stand-up and been writing sit sitcom scripts at the same time and no one ever read them. No one ever read them at all. I'd enter all the writers' room competitions. I think I did win a competition called Funny on Three, which was like a BBC Three thing. Um, and I worked with a guy called Carl Cooper, who's a fantastic producer and writer. He wrote Lab Rats with Chris Addison, um, and he taught me everything. He was like, he, he's he's like, a, I, I was like his little apprentice, and he'd make me sit sit me down and make me watch Dinner Ladies, um, and tell me the story structure. And he'd sit me down with Lab Rats and go, "Here's where we." here's the good bit about it. And here's the way we went wrong. And like, I just learned, I absorbed all this information from him. He was amazing. Um, and, but I was, I was just churning out scripts all the time and, and uh, to be honest, very rarely sending them to anybody because I was too embarrassed. Um, and then what happened, I was, I was so stand up was basically going better than the, the writing. Uh, and then I was friends with Ian and then Ian, uh, Ian Sterling landed the job on Love Island um, and he uh, that obviously took off and became a huge hit and then from there uh, our management company Avalon who mm. are also a production company um, they sort of floated the idea of Ian writing a sitcom uh, and they knew that I'd written sitcoms because I, I was constantly talking about them and um, yeah. uh, so they said oh why don't you two write a sitcom together uh, and we'll pitch it. So we started doing it. But to be honest, th this was like 2018, uh, Edinburgh 2018, we first talked about it. Um, and but I never really thought it was going to get made because like everything, you just don't think you're going to get a sitcom. You never believe it. <laughs> Correct. So it was always, a, it, <laughs> yes. was a, it, it was very yeah. much a hobby. And I actually had other sitcom ideas in my head that I was more kind of uh, passionate about because they, they were the they were the ones that I uh, had been working on for years. Um, and then we had this buffering idea in the background and then it just sort of Avalon are incredibly good at their jobs and they lined up meetings with every single channel in the country. And I remember thinking when they did that, I was like, oh, this is this is different. <laughs> I, yeah. didn't, I didn't normally get this. Do your homework. Was, yeah. Yeah. I'm fully aware. This is all because of Ian's, Ian Sterling's kind of profile. Uh, it opened up doors massively. And, you know, with everything, with getting anything made, it's a mixture of hard work and luck. And um, uh, we had all these meetings. We met every single channel, and we, me and Ian, kind of rehearsed this pitch because uh, we were quite good at that. Because we were performing, you know, we we were used to yeah. you know deliver spoken pitch before we had a treatment or a script. Yeah, we met with all the channels, and then they got various script commission offers or, or whatever. And then we wrote a script, and then in Edinburgh 2019, I think we'd we'd been in talks of ITV at that time, and then we just found out on the first. The first night of my Edinburgh Fringe run, I found out we'd got a serious commission. Wow. And I like every comedian, I also got quite a bad review that day. And obviously all I cared about was the review. And I remember <laughs> my I remember my manager coming in to like congratulate me after my show. And I was furious because I'd read this review. And she was like, you've got a sitcom. Why do you care? And I was like, "It's he's, he didn't watch the show properly. It was a bad night. It's not fair. Uh, and and, and she, I realized at that point I was never going to be happy. That's good, though. Know thyself. Yeah. That's, know thyself. That's good advice. But again, as you explain the story, you make it sound like it was all pretty easy. But actually, the, a number of things there that happened, which we can learn from. One is starting, you know, 10 years earlier and writing yeah. lots and lots of sitcom scripts, learning about story. Opportunity comes along. But then... 
the key is to make the most of that opportunity and rather than sort of rock up to these meetings with a half-assed idea and you know hey do you want a piece of this it's like no no we're gonna really think carefully about how to make the most of this opportunity and I think I've really had to relearn that lesson myself of just like just make sure when you get an opportunity take full advantage of it um, because you don't really know what's going to happen uh, as a result of that so I think that's yeah that's all good you know that's good yeah I, 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 that's, I sort of see it like I spent ages learning how to do it and then I got a chance and I, I guess I grabbed it with, yeah. with Ian's a lot of Ian's help but I'm also fully aware that I could have been waiting another five, 10 years and I'd yep. felt I'd have felt I'd have felt more ready, you know, like the opportunity might have come up in 10 years and I'd have felt more equipped. So I don't know if you ever feel ready for it. Like I remember when we first got it, I still felt massively out of my depth and scared. And it was very rushed, um, huge time constraints and budget constraints. And you're just sitting there. I put as much effort into those scripts as I did into the scripts that never got read. Yeah, but in the back of your head, you're just thinking, "Fuck!" Someone spent nearly half a million pounds on this script, like, and and it sound you, you can't spend too long thinking about it because it it sort of drives you mad. Yeah, but I guess um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I I never I don't think you feel ready. Like you, yeah. if you're waiting for that moment where you go, "Oh, I'm ready to make a sitcom now," I'm ready to do you. That's never going to come. You just have to be as ready as you can be, and then hopefully it really goes all right. It must have been, though, also this sort of slightly surreal world in which, you know, you're with, with Ian, who's probably, you know, the, at, at that moment is the most famous voice on British TV. And yet yeah. you can just kind of walk down the street with him and nobody's going to go, oh, my God, it's the narrator of Love Island. And presumably... <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. He, his level of fame is a very interesting. One. We, we go on tour together. I support him on tour. And um, we were in Exeter a few months ago. And we went, it was, uh, we'd, we'd finished the show. We went to a kebabbery after, you know, like a kebabbery, and it was full of students, just packed full of students. Prime Love Island audience. And uh, Ian was like, oh, I'm going to get recognised. And then, but we walked in and actually no one batted an eyelid. And we're like, okay, it's fine. It's absolutely fine. And then we're, we're doing the kebab order and the guy starts putting like the wrong lettuce into Ian's kebab. And Ian just instinctively speaks out loud and says, <laughs> no, no, not that. Can you put this in? And honestly, the whole... Everyone in the room just turned around and recognised his voice. And it was like him correcting a kebab order made him recognisable to this room full of students. And honestly, we had to like get out of there within like a minute. He was like, just wrap it up, wrap it up. And you could see people go, love Island, love Island. Oh my God, Ian, Ian. And we had to like run. But before that, no one cared. That's amazing, isn't it? That's Brilliant. Cool. I think Marlon Brando tells a similar story. That's right. Yes, that's right. That is amazing. But uh, it, 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 it's like you say, it's sort of on the one hand, it did it, it did open doors for you. But on, on the other hand, I guess you are still kind of firmly sort of planted in reality. There's a kind of, un, under, like you mentioned, the kind of meaninglessness of this half million uh, figure. And I guess the sort of absurdity of, of, of Ian's situation probably kept helped to sort of keep you grounded as well. Is that the case? Do you think yeah, so? yeah, definitely. And I think it definitely opened up uh, opportunities. I'm under no illusions to that. But um, I also think ITV aren't ITV are a commercial operation, and they're not going to spend three million pounds on a sitcom if they don't think it's uh, a if they don't think you can do it. And yeah. B, if they don't think people are going to watch it, it doesn't really matter who it is. Like if they even they might love Ian, but they're still not going to throw that kind of money at something that um, they don't back. And, and I guess getting the second series, obviously a bit of me, or the whole way through the first series was thinking, oh God, maybe they're just doing this to keep him sweet about Love Island. But once you get the second series, you go, ah, oh, they probably wouldn't, they probably wouldn't spend this much money to keep him sweet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so that was a relief. I'm kind of doing doing the the um the date maths and working out there must have been a covid sort of uh oh yeah big time in that first series so yeah we got commissioned in august 2019 uh and we know we know what's coming uh and then we we filmed the first two episodes in november 2019 so that 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 time period was crazy quick to be honest and i look back at it i'm like that was too quick we shouldn't we should have been given more time, but just because of scheduling and that's they, so they common though. And I and I do say this quite often to say it's so annoying. They often they can take eighteen months to decide on whether they want something, and the moment they want it, they want it in four months. They want all five. They want five new scripts in four months. So yeah. 
it's not so much you better be ready because as you rightly said you probably don't ever feel ready but this this script needs to not be a fluke it needs to be a blueprint for five more scripts and you need the yeah. talent to to back it rather than just seeing your script as a lottery ticket a winning lottery ticket it isn't that you know no so you, actually not and but we, two months that's going some for two episodes well, ready to film and also we made a mistake well not a mistake we made a decision uh i made the decision quite early on in after it got commissioned that we were going to scrap our pilot episode that we'd got the thing commissioned with because although i was very proud of it and obviously it was good enough for itv to like it didn't actually set us up very well for a series like it it wasn't it wasn't the starting episode that i wanted it to be and we made a brave decision to to start again um and so we wrote a whole brand new episode wow okay so you didn't even have one in the you didn't even have one in the chamber for that. Oh, my word. I don't think we ever told ITV that, but obviously we used some of the stuff. But, you know, the character work was there. And, yeah. the, you know, it wasn't completely new, but um, it meant we had to do it very quickly. Um, and we filmed the first two episodes. And it might have been October, actually, late October. I remember I went on holiday with my girlfriend at the time to Portugal, straight after Edinburgh. And I was not a fun person to be on holiday with that time. I was... I was a mess. All I was thinking about was I've only got weeks to write two episodes of a sitcom, but I don't really want to be on this damn holiday. I've, I've, I've just achieved my dream and I've now got to walk around Lisbon. <laughs> but we did it and it was very rushed. Um, and we definitely made some mistakes because of that. But equally, that was the circumstances. You know, like you can't spend too long worrying about it because that was mm. that was the only way we were going to film those episodes. And then COVID hit. In, so we were due to film the final four episodes in May. There was a sort of two block filming thing because of Ian's scheduling. Ah, oh, okay. Um, that is very unusual to, to block it. Very like unusual. Yeah, okay. yeah. So we had two eps that we just knew we had to focus on these two episodes, get them filmed, and then we'd, we'd write the final four and then film them in May. Um, so we're doing that. And then COVID hits in February. Everything gets pushed back. And it, it wasn't like a clean, like, you're getting pushed back a year. It was like, oh, we'll just push it back a few weeks. So we kept writing these scripts. And obviously the whole thing gets pushed back by a whole year. So we were due to be on TV in the summer 2020 after Love Island, but there was no Love Island that year. Um, uh, and so we basically got an extra year to write episodes three to six. And the filming took place 18 months. The gap between episode two and three is 18 months. And if you really look into Ian's eyes, you can see that. Uh, he, I think he, he had a baby in that time. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to that's gonna make some changes, isn't it? But it, I, I sort of, it was a blessing, really, because we, we were able to take stock. And almost it was like doing a pilot. It was like, two, it was like doing two episodes of a pilot. And we actually refilmed some of episode one because of things we weren't happy with. And ITV were very supportive. And uh it meant we could really get but really into the scripts and sit and we had a brilliant producer called jane bell and she just for months and months on end during the, the pandemic i was just sat in in i was actually at uh stay at my girlfriend's uh, ha uh family house at the time and we, i would just spend hours on these scripts every day and it sort of stopped me going mad during uh the, the pandemic uh and then we yeah. filmed it eventually in 2021 and it went on yeah it went on screen in the august 21 so that's quite a quick uh, decision from getting series one to to getting series two, was it? There? Yeah, it was a few oh. weeks after uh, after it finished yeah. going on air. I think I think ITV were happy with the ratings and um, you got to have your yeah. Alan Partridge moment. Have I got a second series? Yeah. Oh, it was so nerve wracking. Every every time it went out on TV, me and Ian were checking the ratings and comparing it to all the other shows and just you, I became the worst version of myself during that six week period I think because uh, you just obsess over all the wrong things I've, I've definitely learned now that I the fun bit of making a sitcom is making the sitcom is like is writing it and yeah. filming it that's that's the most amazing thing that I've ever done I feel I, I'm no I'm the happiest I've ever, ever am is on set making my sitcom when it comes out is not happy and it's not it's not good in any way it's awful I, even if even if it goes amazingly well and people come up to you and say, oh, that was brilliant. All I'm thinking the whole time is, yeah, you don't mean that, do you? You don't mean that. What do you actually think? And I can't, no one could say anything to me about the sitcom that would satisfy my insecurities. So it's, I've it's learned the, yeah. to, not, it's, it's, to not worry too much about it. Yeah, it's the, it's the bad review in Edinburgh against the backdrop of the sort of 95 great reviews and the sellout shows, isn't it? It's that yeah. still, yeah, yeah but. 
I really, and then you go and do your show, and then you come off. And another thing about that review, I, mean, I don't, what the, I don't know yeah. if I've mentioned it before, but A. A. Gill um, wrote about. <laughs> so <laughs> I've mentioned many times on this podcast the right. absolutely another point. <laughs> The, the the totally awful review from the Sunday Times for Bluestone 4-2, um, where he was furious about our show and everything. Um, and that's the, even though the, the Times, not on Sunday, thought it was great. Andrew Billen, I think his name was, just thought, oh, this is a great show, proper writing. You know on. his name was Andrew Billen. You know this story inside <laughs> out, James. Come on. It was a long time ago now. You know, it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because I think when Bluestone was going out, I was watching it go out and also watching Twitter because also I, I, I'd seen it mm. before. So there was in one sense, nothing for me to see. Um, but all I know about ratings is that they aren't as important as you think. Um, because if they like your show and they like the talent, they'll do it. And if they don't like it, if they don't like the way it's turned out, if they've changed their minds about it, then they're not going to do it. And they'll use bad ratings to get rid of it. But if you get bad ratings and they like it, they say, we don't care about ratings. Uh, we believe yeah. in this show and we believe in the talent. And this is exactly the kind of show we should be doing. So actually, I, I really don't think the ratings make any great difference, even on a commercial station, I, I think. Mm. Do you get that sense, Steve? Um I, I don't. I don't know. I've never asked ITV in detail what they. And uh, don't don't whatever you do. I'm not. I don't want to know. I think ITV are very commercial driven. So yeah, yeah. You know, for them, it, it is about the money, uh, which is totally fine. Yeah. Um, um, and but there are still other you know, factors. That there's still talent management, the positioning of ITV two, what they're saying about what their brand is and isn't, yeah, what kind of yeah. shows they want to attract. So it it is more than just can we sell adverts in between oh, absolutely um, and it, there is a there's definitely a channel branding thing like because we you know buffering is about the that the people who are stuck in that life where they should be adults by now they should be doing they they, they should be settling yeah. down having kids uh and they're just not they're in delayed adulthood and that is so relatable to the itv2 audience particularly the ones who are watching love island um so in that sense it does tick a lot of boxes for them i guess it, you know it, yeah. it matches up whereas if it was a family sitcom about some old dad then yeah you can see why itv2 maybe wouldn't be that excited about it but in terms of the topics and the the things we cover in the episodes it's so on point for itv2 and we were very conscious of that like we yeah. i guess it's i guess it's cynical um, no no it's, believe, it's called serving your a, audience it's yeah, fine yeah, yeah. it's allowed yeah i mean I'm a, I'm a believer in like write what you love and stuff but also i'm a believer in getting a second series so yeah. i think you've got a uh, You've, you have at some point got to just go well actually i love it but you have also got to make sure you're writing for what the, the people who are watching it want to watch yeah what what i what what interested me i thought and and particularly in light of what you've been saying about how you kind of came, you you came to writing and performing from uh the, the sort of point of, of telling stories and you know what? What what I find very very impressive with with uh, buffering is you've got this kind of quite large, like six or seven uh, main cast, yeah, and that's it's like an ITV half hour of about what twenty twenty two minutes or something, and yeah, twenty two and a half, yeah, yeah. You've got sort of two or three big stories that are running through, and every character there's there's you know it feels like. It feels like every character is involved in at least one story, and so you know, and and inevitably because there's so many characters, so the stories are quite short. But you still manage to kind of do all that stuff that you were saying that you yeah. did in that in the hour. You know, for for each story, you hit that kind of moment. You hit the think, moment of jeopardy and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So um, I think I'm um, interested. I mean, you could talk a lot. You have told us a little bit about your, you know, the the kind of how. The, the difference in your uh, personalities, you and Ian, but what's your kind of uh, process of uh, writing? Um, we, we we tend to just write uh, together on, on Zoom uh, or in a room. We'll, we'll, we'll throw ideas around and then we'll split the scenes up and go and write separately. We also had some other co-writers on this series, uh, Sally um, O'Leary, Christine Robertson, um and Janine Haruni and Jesse Cave who were also in the sitcom um so we they were given an episode each with with me so Ian would be there at the kind of plotting stage um and we'd do the ideas here's the rough structure would beat it out um 
Would you tend to go story based? So, so for example, would you go, we've got a bunch of stories um, for these characters and we've got these other stories. Were you thinking this story would go with that story or was an episode, did you have a main idea for an episode and then you came up with stories around that? How did you sort of piece the jigsaw together? Interestingly, and this is the only podcast I could ever talk about this on. Hooray! The writing um, changed immeasurably between series one and two. Series one, we took a kind of, I was very obsessed with uh, the American structure of three ABC and as you know, the right number of turning points and blah, 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 and do all that. And I, in some, I think sometimes we got it bang on and I think we got it right. And then sometimes it was too packed. Like there was too, there was too much going on and we, we didn't do justice to some of the quite funny scenarios because we had to rush through it. So series two, we got a script, a new a script editor called Kate Lees, who is the both the scariest woman I've ever met, but also the the smartest. She is she script edited like incredible movies. She she did the Simon Amstel movie. She did Churchill. She did. She's just like an absolute expert on story structure. And she sat me and down and was like, right, you know, here's what here's what you're going to do for series two. Here's how you're going to write. And I was like, nah, nah, nah. I know that's not how I do it. I do it like this. And she's like. <laughs> She's like, do you want to be more series? Yeah, exactly. And I was so scared. I was like, oh, okay, let's do it like that. And actually she taught me so much that, because she, she really made me focus on what the sitcom was about, which, and we always knew this wasn't, it wasn't a revelation, but sometimes you can lose sight of it. And the sitcom is, it's called buffering because they're not fully loaded adults and they're stuck between, you know, they're desperately trying to become adults, but they, they can't do it. And then once you hone on in on that idea, you then flesh out situations that expose that, that floor, right? Um, so then we started going, okay, so, you know, when you, that moment where you try for a house party and you realize that you are not, you're too old to throw a house party now. So then that's an episode. So we really tried to focus on the controlling idea of the sitcom and and then get stories off that. And then the characters were already in existence. And we had, you know, we tweaked Ian's character about in series two, because we, his blind obsession wasn't quite clear in series one. Um, he 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 went between being the kind of uh uh arrogant ian and also a kind of lazy uh like bit of a slouch bit of a waster and actually i think he was funniest when he was delusional and yeah um he's he's obsessed with status and uh, uh and being cool and so in series two we really honed in on that so we just made sure every episode that he is trying to be cool he's trying to impress someone he's trying to uh be above his station in some way um and then and then it all themes around uh adulthood it basically all themes around trying to be adults uh you know in episode four they go and visit some friends and the friends they think are throwing a house party but actually there's a dinner party and those friends have moved on to proper adulthood and they've got a slow cooker and they've got a nutribullet and i cannot and... get slow cookers to cook meals i want i just I, what is it with slow cookers? Anyway, sorry. You're air not fryers. a proper adult, James. And now it's uh, air fryers, um, but let's not go down that road. Oh, fucking yeah. air fryers. Yeah. yeah How do you know a, that someone's got um, an air fryer? Because they tell you. Anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so Kate really helped with going, what is this show about? And do not look, be laser like focused on everything. Every single scene needs to debate that idea. Like every single thing is about, are we adults yet? No, we're not. And obviously they're never going to become adults because then the show is over. Um, so we need to always exploit their immaturity. Um, and then each episode, she made us focus on a particular idea within the world of buffering. So like episode three, I think you mentioned, Dave, was is about impressing your parents. And the controlling idea is why do we why do we still need our parents approval when we're in our late 20s? which of course you do, but you sort of think you're beyond it, don't you? You sort of think, well, I, I don't care what my dad thinks anymore, but of course we do. Yeah. Um, and the characters are all, and on some, uh, in some way, trying to, particularly Ian, trying to get the validation from their parents and uh, failing and then succeeding. Mm. Um, and that is like a buffering topic because it's, you, you think you should be beyond that. You think when you're an adult, you should, you're the parent, you know, you're the one that, but actually, you never really outgrow that. Am I allowed to? Do, it's a little spoiler, but I th- it was such a funny idea. I thought, am I, I think am it's not okay. allowed to say that the uh, characters who uh, split up, but the the uh, the man the man still yeah. 
likes her father, and he go he has these sort of secret secret meeting with her well, father. She, you yeah, know, that's actually based on that's that is actually is a bit of stand up that I did because I uh, I don't know if I should say the names, but the uh, my ex, the one I mentioned, her dad is a comedy writer who's actually been on this podcast. Um, and uh, I won't say the name, but the uh, I desperately still want to be friends with him after the, the breakup because it, we used to we used to just geek out over comedy. We'd like chat about comedy for hours and hours and hours. Uh, so I would start I start meeting up with him for pints to chat about comedy, and I'd tell my friends I'm like that's so weird, Steve. You meet up with your ex's dad. Uh, yeah, that and, is weird. Uh, yeah, yeah. It is weird. It is yeah. weird. Mm. Yeah, but mm. honestly, all we talked about was comedy. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Over, it's it's it still weird. More... Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't. We haven't mapped. We haven't mapped in a while now. But um, but it's true. I, obviously... I mean, I think I'm I'm encouraged to hear you say how series two because I guess in series one the the inherent stand up in both of you, I guess, was like, oh, we've got a series commission. Make them laugh. Make them laugh. Make them laugh. And so you are slightly grabbing at funny set piece scenes that you know will be funny and it's very hard to resist those and in one sense great you know it's, it's funny what's not to like but just that idea of just working out why is this funny and so what what I'm often saying to people when I'm reading pilot scripts particularly is like you've got this really interesting setup for a show but your story doesn't match your setup so you've got this you, you, your show is clearly about a relationship between a mother and a daughter and they're both doing their own thing in the script. And so we don't, they're not really together very much. So do you, why are you doing that? Oh, well, it was, you know, and basically it was the first plots they thought of. It's like, no, no, you need to come up with ones that are the quintessential, ep you know, the, what is this show really about? And it's, you know, it's really hard to do that because it just feels like, oh, goodness sake. Um, yeah. And but you really need to do it. You, you need to do it. And, I Kate uh, was so good at every time we strayed off course. Every time I said, "Oh, we've got this really funny idea," she'd be like, "Yeah, it's funny, but it doesn't make any sense." And me and Ian would sometimes fight back and be like, "No, no, we we're the comedians. We know what's funny. This is going in the show." And she'd be like, "Well, your show's going to be shit then." And <laughs> uh, and then I've got like it. Okay, we're getting her on the show. We've got to get. Oh, this. she's yeah. amazing. Okay, you, uh, yeah. be prepared to not talk for a while. Um, okay, that's that's all right. She knows so much stuff. She's absolutely amazing. I love her. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember because the, the, the writing for series two was basically took over the took place over last summer. And I was in a real, it was stressful. You know, I was, it was, it was really hard. I was on tour as well. Um, and I remember ringing her on in Sainsbury's. Uh, I was just having a meltdown. I was like, Kate, I can't do it. I don't know how to, I've got two more episodes to write. And I don't know what to do. I've only got a few weeks. And she said, right, go and get some biscuits. What's your favorite biscuit? And uh, she basically like, mothered me into, into <laughs> writing this sitcom. Uh, and and one of my happiest memories is we were filming in um, uh, October, we filmed, and she came and visited the set. And honestly, it was it was like a parent coming to watch okay. you. Okay, and, and you, and you wanted to impress them and be like... Oh, totally, yeah. I wanted to yeah. impress her. And I was like, look, look at me on camera, Kate. Look at me on camera. <laughs> uh, uh, but she taught me so much and I'm very grateful to her. And I, I would love to work with her again because she... She just knows how it works. And there are just simple, you know, we've all read the books. We've been to Robert McKee and we've, mm. all that stuff. Um, and you try and remember that stuff when you're writing. But naturally, you, you when you're in the woods, you, you lose sight of all of it. So you make mm. mistakes. Um, and she was just really good at going, no, no, what's the episode about? It, it's about parental approval. So this little scene you've got that's really funny doesn't do that. It's yeah. not about parental approval. So you've got to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and actually now I'm really happy that she did that. Uh, although at the time I cursed her quite a lot. Yeah. Um, but it's about it, trusting it, yourself, isn't it? To, it's like, you know how to make a scene funny. That is the sort of scene that we want. So don't, don't worry about it. You don't stop clinging onto that one that is funny, but isn't what we need. It's, exactly. it's, you know, it's like trusting yourself that you've got the muscles and the muscle memory to do it rather than hanging onto those jokes that work. Yeah. I remember Daniel. Absolutely. Yeah. When uh, we we had Daniel Peake on the show, and he was talking about writing, uh, not going out with with um, with Lee Mack, and saying how you know the, the 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 jokes are the very last thing that come really, and it's all about the getting the plotting and the structure and getting all of that absolutely right. And uh, yeah, jo jokes last, I think, was the 
Was well, jokes are easy. Mantra. Jokes are sort not easy, but jokes are uh, changeable. You know, like joke. Some of the best jokes no. we wrote were on, we wrote on set. You know, like that, that's how that's yeah. how little they matter. Like you change them on the day, whereas you wouldn't change a major plot point on the day because you spent hours and hours thinking about it. Um, and jokes are easier if as the more you know the characters and the more the more comfortable you are with who the characters are, then then yeah, jokes are to come up with jokes on the day. Whereas coming up with a joke on the day for a character who isn't very well thought through, yeah. that's going to be yeah. a random we, joke. We were quite it? lucky because we've got very, uh, our, our, our performers are generally stand-ups, so they're all very funny. They're all good writers themselves, particularly like Janine Haruni, Jesse Cave, they're all so, so talented. Uh, so often if a joke that me and Ian have written just wasn't wasn't good enough, that Janine would just sort of quietly rewrite it for us. Uh, and then when the camera started rolling, she'd just say a funnier version. And we're like, that's great. That's really handy. That's really helpful yeah. that we've got that. But uh, but what's great is, and it, what, it just emphasises the fact that the fact that it's that character in that situation, what they say it's not that it doesn't matter, but there's probably a funnier version of it. But you've got to get those characters into those situations. You know, you're trying to align all the planets so that you've got your best chance of being funny. And therefore, what's the best formula of words? Whereas otherwise, if you've got a really nice joke, you're sort of bending the scene to get to it. And you can sort of see it in scripts and in scenes where you just think, oh, this scene exists because of that joke. Oh, OK. Uh, that's yeah, and that, it's not two pages worth of build-up funny that joke. No, that's, and the yeah. moment the audience know that the writer's written it, it's not funny. Yeah, so yeah. it's or not it feels even worth written. doing. Yeah, it feels yeah, exactly. written, doesn't yeah. it? And it's like, and you just yeah, it can be less funny but more character-driven, and it'll be much much better. And some of the best, some of the stuff I'm most proud of in series two is. Uh, where Ian is just put under so much pressure that he makes just the the maximum mistakes and uh, and and that actually has got the fewest jokes in it because you don't need to write jokes when they, when someone's making that many mistakes uh, and that's the stuff like I feel, I constantly feel like I'm learning but like when I, I think when we got some of that particularly episode three I think where his wife Laura's in it as well and he's been really funny he's just he's, he's just he's come up with a TV pilot idea that's just fucking terrible uh, and. Uh, you don't actually need to write any jokes there because he's just, he's totally being Ian and he uh, has got himself into a mess. And I, I know it's, you know, I, I've read it in the books. You get them into trouble and you get them out of trouble, blah, blah, blah. But when you're actually doing it, you you sort of forget it. And and then when you get it right, you're like, oh, that works because of that thing I learned in Robert McKee. Like it, you can't reverse engineer it. You have to like do it and then uh, and then work out why it was right. Yeah. So you've listened to this podcast, you know, wanting advice. You're now on the podcast dispensing advice. What advice would you be given to people who are listening to this podcast thinking, I could do that. I want to do that. I'm trying to do that. What would you say to them? First of all, I would like to say I feel like a massive fraud and uh, shouldn't be giving out advice. Having said that, I will now give some advice. Um, uh, I think the best thing I've realized since... I guess like achieving what I've wanted to achieve. Like my dream is to write a sitcom and I've written a sitcom. And what I've learned from doing that is that the best bit about writing a sitcom is writing a sitcom. It's like actually writing the sitcom. Like making the sitcom isn't isn't that isn't that fun. The what is fun, but it, you know, when it comes out, it's quite stressful. The the best bit is sitting in your room on your own writing a script. And the buzz I got from that was exactly the same when. I didn't have a sitcom commissioned and I was just doing it as a hobby and a passion project. Right. So the best advice I'd give is that if you're like hoping that there's a special moment when it's all going to be amazing and it's going to get commissioned and your life will change, like, yeah, some stuff will change, but actually the, honestly, the best thing about writing a sitcom is sitting and writing a scene and the buzz you get when a joke lands or when you tie together two stories or this character that you nail and you're really excited to like see where they go and like you don't need ITV or anyone to give you money to do that. You can just do it in your room, yeah. sit and write scenes. Because honestly, it's the that's the best bit of writing a sitcom. It's the most fun bit. Presumably, though, when you were writing it, that um, you know when 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 you're doing it for fun or a hobby or whatever, or you know a, pa a passion for something that you really want to do, you know you've you've you you there aren't any uh, external factors playing. But uh, you're saying. You're saying that even with you kind of saying it, uh, never mind about ITV, but, you know, ITV have 
put their faith in you. They put some money on the table and there, there is that extra pressure now. But you're still saying, despite that, that, you know, once you were there and writing, yeah. none of that mattered. You managed to get... Yeah, I think it head, felt yeah? the same. I mean, obviously, there was the occasional moment where uh, you'd get an email saying, where's this damn script? And you, you don't get that when it hasn't commissioned, been commissioned. But yeah. the fundamental process of thinking of a scene and like that moment where the scene doesn't work and you're just like frustrated and you think you're a rubbish writer and then like 10 minutes later you solve the scene and you think you're Aaron Sorkin like the that process is exactly the same when you're you're getting paid for it as when you're not and I just I wish I'd been told that when I was like 21 that basically you can do the fun bit already like you don't need to be given permission to do the fun bit you can just go and do it. That's great advice. Um, and I tell you, it's because in a way, I, I worry that sometimes when we talk to people or people ask, ask us for advice, it's like, I think they're not really enjoying it. They don't really want to do it. And maybe they want to be a writer or be there what they think is their idea of being a writer. And actually, the moment you write a decent pilot script, what, what, what's going to happen next if everything goes really well? They're going to ask you to write five more. You know, it may possibly within six weeks in your case. Um, So in a way, if you don't enjoy that bit, then you should probably go and write a novel or you should probably write uh, a movie or you should... Go and and get a job job in finance and get a mortgage. Like, if you don't enjoy (laughs) creative, God, don't do it for money. Uh, And what I will also say is, again, another something similar that someone I wish someone had told me early on is that if you've done it once, if you've like written one idea, you can do it again. Like don't get too attached to that one idea and think mm. that this is your only baby. Just do it again and do it again and again and again. Like keep writing ideas all the time and don't get too worried about perfecting them because you know if it ever gets made, that's when you'll that's when you can perfect it with lots of people looking at it. But you know, just like keep writing because you'll get better. And as I say, it's the fun bit. Like it becomes not as fun when you're just like stressed over this one project that you've got and actually if you just write 10 of them because you like writing then you you suddenly become a much better writer and you enjoy it more thinking about that that part of the process uh and i'm i just just i know you you said you know you had a very short amount of time to write a lot of scripts but i was wondering how much um interference is too strong a word but i mean how many how many mountains of notes from different uh people did you get and did you have to was was there a lot of that once you had written the first draft because that that is the one thing that is a big difference isn't it really you have coping coping with 20 people commenting yeah that is a difference but if you surround yourself with good people then usually they're good notes and you respect them and you they're usually right like it's not very often that the notes are like completely off yeah completely wrong sometimes what happens and you've got to bear this in mind is really smart people will give you notes um and they'll say oh i'm not sure about this thing um here's a solution and what you've got to separate those two things like what they're saying is something's wrong and here's my idea for the solution they they they're probably correct that the thing's wrong because they're very smart and they, they're used to doing it they don't necessarily have the correct solution yeah. so what they really want you to do and they i don't think generally you know our commissioner's done this before where they've said oh, i'm just not happy, happy about this you know why don't you do this and they don't really care that much about their solution per se what they care about is solving the problem mm. so if you, you can come up with a different solution that you like to that, then that will probably also satisfy their note yeah and actually they may feel obliged to give you a solution because i always feel a bit uh, rotten when I say this bit isn't really working um, how about you know how about this or this or this would be the bit I'd focus on I I I think the answer lies over here so but you're right it's just every, every note is usually about something and they might not even diagnose why that that bit doesn't work for them and so their solution might be just like way way off um, yeah. but yeah no that's helpful so in a way take take the note but fix it bearing in mind all the other notes and all the other stuff and it may be yeah. and also don't be scared of notes like notes are a good thing like it's exciting to collaborate with people and they've got fresh eyes on it and like i get such a buzz the fact that anyone cares enough about something i've written to give me notes like it's mad like our commissioner um nana like she made peep show and stuff and so the fact that she even reads my scripts and 
it gives me notes. Just play, it honestly blows my mind. Like, yeah, yeah. She's, she's giving you notes like she gave to Sam and Jesse, and they're proper writers. And she says Sam and Jesse, and I'm like, you can't say that. You've got a yeah, full yeah, note. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that no, that's that. good. I would, sorry, one other, one Please other, do. One other advice I got uh, is, I guess it's a confidence note. Like, don't deify people like Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong or Amanda Inucci and uh, Lisa McGee or whoever it is. Don't, like, think they're these, like, otherworldly writers who've achieved mm. something that you could never achieve because they're, they're generally not. I've met a few of them and they're almost always just really hardworking uh, as neurotic and insecure as the rest of us. They usually, what separates them is that they're just a bit more hardworking and they got they got their luck or they just took their chance. That's mm. really that's really the difference. They're not some geniuses. So and that really helps to think of it like that because you can you can get to that point. You might not net you might not get there, but they're not it's not inaccessible. Yeah. I think uh, going back to Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong, they are good writers, but I remember the thing that Mitchell and Webb said, I think maybe it was David Mitchell particularly said that what they really learned from them is they were prepared to cut good lines, not just, you know, they were prepared to cut jokes that weren't right, that didn't fit. And most, and, and you know, I think David said, you know, he's such a craven performer who wants laughs. He'd never cut a joke if he thinks he's going to get a laugh. Um, but yeah, so it's just a question of, it's not rocket science. It's just being prepared to do those things. You might need to get up a bit earlier. You might need to work a bit longer, or you might just need to change your process a bit. But obviously there's a certain amount of talent. Some people have a bit of a knack for it. Some people have a particular bent towards a genre and all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but John Finnamore, who we hold in very high regard, particularly for his radio sitcom work and stuff like that. I mean, he screams at the wall with the rest of them and has to, to stay up all night and fix something, you know, sleeping in a production office in a sleeping bag, I believe, at one point because the recording was the next day and all that kind of stuff. So there's no there's no great big secret that we're not telling anybody. <laughs> another another point as well to mention, you mentioned Sam and Jesse and uh, other people who write with them on, uh, uh, who write with uh, Jesse on Succession, uh, uh, Tony Roach and uh, Georgia Pritchett, who we've had on the show. And, you know, Tony and Georgia both started, like James and I, writing one-line jokes, uh, one-line topical comedy jokes for the radio. So, you know, that's that's where they began I mean, as I, well. I so. did that as well. I started yeah. and submitting jokes for Newsjack and the show what you wrote do you remember that it was a short lived uh yeah. Oh, yeah. mission show yeah, yeah. sketch on there very exciting yeah uh, and when when but... you hear it and they, they're doing your sketch it's just like flipping it they're doing my sketch laugh yeah, I, please get... like oh it's not the funniest sketch on the show it's not even close yeah. to being the best one <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah no but that's really refreshing it's a great reminder also just to going back to what you just said at the start of this bit is how it is about the work. And if, if you love sitcoms, if you love comedy, you love writing, although it is hard and frustrating and, you know, lots of writers like having written rather than have, you know, the actual writing, all that kind of stuff. If you're not, if you're not up for that challenge, then, then this is not, this is not for you. Um, and there are loads of other things that are admirable that I don't want to do. I don't want to be particularly good at carpentry. Um, because, you know, there's an awful lot of measuring involved in keeping things sharp. I don't want to have to keep knives sharp and all that and sharpen saws and all that kind of stuff. If you don't want to do that, don't don't do that. You know, yeah. it's not it's not yeah. rocket science, is it, in that sense? Yeah. No. And the genuine the buzz is amazing. Like yeah. solving solving a scene or get you know, coming up with an idea for a story that you're excited about. Like I'm working on a new project now that no one's paid me to do. Yeah. <laughs> no one will care about. But I've spent the day just thinking about the characters and getting excited about plot lines and honestly it, i just get I, I enjoy that as much as when 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 we were making buffering um yeah it's that's the it is i promise you it's the best bit yeah yeah well that's yeah. that's yeah. great advice yeah. yeah we agree thanks very much yeah. um so the, it is definitely time to go although we're gonna hang on for a little bit our patreons will get a bit of extra where we're going to chat a bit about live performance stand up edinburgh all that kind of stuff so stay tuned for that but in the meantime, uh, go and listen to Buffering. Which... And and watch it as well. Yes, don't uh, sorry. Listen. Use your eyes. Watch it's on it. telly. Don't listen to it. There's plenty to look at uh, as well. And it's on, is it ITVX? Is that the name of their player? ITVX is where you can stream it. Um, the UK's freshest streaming service. And yeah. uh, 
ITV2 at 10.05 p.m. on the 30th of Jan and every Monday subsequently. Yeah. And if you record it like I Mm. like I do, if I record things on ITV so that I don't have to watch the adverts um, because you can't skip the adverts on the on the player. um, The four player. Blimey, that gives you ads, doesn't it? Uh, Flip an egg. That is a very ad heavy platform. So do watch the ads because they do they do pay for it. <laughs> oh man, you've changed. Yeah, you've <laughs> yes, yeah. I'd like now a word from our sponsor. I'm all about the writing, but I'm also about the money. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to you've got to live on something. And that's that's the thing. I remember I had a conversation with a, a with the producer a while back saying writers don't actually want money. Money is something they need in order to write. I can't write if I don't have money. If I have to do other things to make money, I can't write. I want to write. So that that's why I need the money. And I'm trying to get as much money as possible. So I have to do as little other things as possible. Um, I don't know. Uh, other views are available. That's pretty purist. I would also say I want some money. Like I do... <laughs> I do like having money. I don't think that's right wing to say that. Like I no, do want, no, no, it's fine. I want, I want enough money yeah. to, you know, have a nice time. I want to afford a slow cooker. You know, I want, I want these, yeah. these treats. Yeah. Oh, they're cheap. It's the air fryer. That's what you want. <laughs> you can always, you can always make money, but you can't make that's more true. time. That's true. That's on that profound note, Dave, thank you very much. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs> Stick around. Uh, join us on Patreon, and you can hear a bit more. But other than that, we'll speak to you next time. Thanks, Steve, very much indeed for being with us. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. And speak to you next time. Cheerio.